The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into the writings of Stephen King. What started as two friends rereading The Dark Tower has turned into an exploration of Stephen King's writing writ large. This episode, we discuss the first half of Stephen King's It. Say thank you, Sai. A drop of water gathered at the lip of the shiny chromium faucet. It grew fat, grew pregnant, you might say. It sparkled, it dropped. Plink. He had dipped his right forefinger in his own blood and had written a single word on the blue tiles above the tub, written it in two huge, staggering letters. A zigzagging, bloody finger mark fell away from the second letter of this word. His finger had made that mark, she saw, and his hand fell into the tub, where it now floated. She thought Stanley must have made that mark. His final impression on the world, as he lost consciousness. It seemed to cry out to her. It. Another drop fell into the tub. Plink. That did it. Patty Uris at last found her voice, staring into her husband's dead and sparkling eyes. She began to scream. Hello, travelers on the path of the beam. Steve and Derek are here with Wheel of Ka, your favorite podcasting quartet. We are here to talk more Stephen King. And uh, you all voted and it came to a dead tie. Then we had to do a runoff and everyone wanted us, Wheel of Ka, Derek and Steve, to tackle it. Thanks, everybody. And we're doing it now. Originally, we thought we could read it and do it in an episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then we looked at it. Yeah. So we have read a little more than half of it at this point. We've read up to page 667, which exactly. is a little more than half. Oh, yeah, you're definitely right. Yeah, yeah, just a little more, but it's pretty much halfway through. Yeah. Which is a lot of words that we've gone through. So we're going to talk about the first half of it. Then we're obviously going to finish the book and come back and do the second half. Hopefully everybody has read up to this point with us and is ready to listen to our it discussion. Very, very excited. Wheel of Ka. You know, we haven't been off for that long, but it has felt. It feels like forever. It has felt like six months. Well, the pandemic makes everything feel like a thousand years. So, but it does. It feels like a long time. It's really been just a little over a month, which is crazy, which is still, that's still a decent chunk of time. You know, I mean, I was literally pacing back and forth today in my kitchen at like four 30. My wife had to say to me, Steve, you have to, you have to sit down and do something. Uh, because I had all my notes written out. I was finished. I was ready to go, you know? And I was like, why can't we do this now? Right. Derek has a job. Yes, I I have a job that works. And as much as I love this, it does not pay the bills. (laughs) No, I wish it did. We would do it all the time. I would never stop. (laughs) So, Steve, man, how are you feeling? It's been over a month since you've been on the pod. Our favorite guest host, the side project Wheel of Cause back, man. Yeah. How are you doing, man? I, I feel pretty good today. I feel a little tired. It's been it's been a long couple of weeks um, just working more. I'm doing standardized patient work, which is pretty cool. Uh, we're teaching, you know, doctors, young kids how to be doctors, basically. Um, 
had therapy today, which is great. I think it's part of the reason I'm feeling pretty good. My therapist kicks ass, dude. Look, let me tell you something. For, for anybody out there that is like, ah, oh, I tried therapy. It doesn't work. I'm telling you, you got to find the right therapist. You got to find the right therapist. Shout out to Hinal. She's amazing. Really wonderful morning. So it started off the day pretty well. And then, you know, I had a bunch of adulting shit to do. Made some French onion soup. Did that today. French onion soup is always Hell a yeah. That, that, is, good. that is always a good day when you good. have a little French onion soup that you made yourself. Yeah. And I mean, I had a little time to myself today. And then from about 430 to about 20 minutes ago, I was pacing. <laughs> Ready for the wheel of God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel good. I feel really good. How are you? How do you feel? You're about to have a baby in any second. Yeah, I am. Uh, according to the official due date, I am 20 days away However, we are entered into the period where theoretically the baby could come at, at any, any time. Like we might not get through this episode. It is theoretically, it's theoretically possible. possible. It's statistically unlikely. Right. But it is. I mean, every second that passes, it becomes closer and closer and more and more likely that Laura will go into labor. So that means your, that as I've learned, well, if she were to go into labor right now, we probably would be here for another two days before having to go to the hospital. Yeah. So well, we would make sense. We would definitely finish the podcast. Oh, that's fine. Well, that's. That's, that's good to know. That's the most important part well, of it. It's your last one before being a dad, man. Yeah, I know. It's wild. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, and children and what it's like to be a kid is a <laughs> big theme of this book. It's the worst book to probably read right now, but because <laughs> all the children are. die. Here yeah. we are. Um, so why don't we start with this? Uh, I'll read the the sort of back little jacket of it. I hit my microphone there as a way to sort of kick us off and thinking about it. And then we'll briefly like kind of summarize where we're at in the book. So here is the back. To the children, the town was their whole world. To the adults, knowing better, Derry, Maine was just their hometown. Familiar, well-ordered, a good place to live. It was the children who saw and felt what made Derry so horribly different. In the storm drains, in the sewers, it lurked, taking on the shape of every nightmare, each person's deepest dread. Sometimes it reached up, seizing, tearing, killing. The adults, knowing better, knew nothing. Time passed and the children grew up, moved away. The horror of it was buried deep, wrapped in forgetfulness. Until the grown-up children were called back, once more to confront it as it stirred and coiled in the sullen depths of their memories, reaching up again to make their past nightmares a terrible present reality. Frightening, epic, and brilliant, Stephen King's It is one of the greatest works of a true storytelling master. I have a question for you. Yes. Who do you think writes the back of these books? It. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no I, idea. You know, you ever think about that? Like who did somebody have to read the book to give that kind of like blah of a synopsis? Yeah. You got to have an editor that probably writes this and you want to tell enough, but not so much. Yeah. Essentially, this is the story of a bunch of adults and a bunch of kids. We're learning their adult story and their child story simultaneously. It starts with them getting a phone call to return home from Derry. And uh, it bounces back and forth between 1958 and 1985. Mm -hmm. I think it's no mistake that those numbers are interchangeable. Uh, it's every 27 years. And we're at the point where the adult children are back and ready to sort of walk the town, trying to trigger their memories, having not forgotten as the child what they did as children. And the group of children are together and they've confronted themselves about these shared haunts that they have experienced mm -hmm. and that these haunts are actually tangibly real and harmful. Meanwhile, we and learn insane. Derry is a place of just horror of death. I mean, the very first part of this is 
a bunch of people who just gay bash a young couple, a gay couple, throw one over a bridge, and the clown just eats him alive. Yeah. And the town, the detectives just hush up the clown because they want to persecute the people that threw him over the bridge. And we learn a lot about Derry the town, but really this is the story of these group of kids, the losers club, so to speak. And we learned their story happening simultaneously, both in 1958 and both in 1985. And that's really the very briefest of brief summaries of where we're at in this book. I think it was great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I wanted to keep it concise, considering there's so much to talk about. Well, because, you know, he just, the editor just decided that this was the greatest thing King ever wrote and never didn't stop him. I mean, this book is unnecessarily large, but I think, I think we'll get to that. Well, yeah. So hit me up. So you mentioned a little bit about the editor, like hit me up with the history of it. I know you've Uh, done some, some work on this. I've done some brief history. So apparently Stephen King first came up with the story in 1978, the first conception in his brain. And he started writing the book in 1981. So, and the book was released in 1985. So he wrote the book over the course of four years. So again, a lot like the tower, he, he wrote it, took time off, wrote something else, came back to it, crafted it. I think that's also part of the reason why it's so long. I, I, I that's an interesting thing to think about for later. Um, uh, let's see what else. Okay. Originally he wanted the character to be a troll that infested the waterways as, as opposed to under a bridge. So instead of a clown, he wanted to be, you know, this, this embodiment of a troll. I, I think the clown is a better choice. Um, and do you, apparently, do you, do you, I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you have any idea why he abandoned the troll? No, I don't. I couldn't find that. Couldn't find that piece. Fair enough. No, I tried. Um, and lastly, Publishers Weekly listed it as the best-selling hardcover book in the United States in 1986. Which makes sense, because the other day you were just saying to me, like, every adult that you knew was reading this book when it came out. Which, make, I mean, it makes sense. It's a killer clown. Please. It's incredible. Yeah, when yeah. I was, and literally when I was a boy in the 80s, I, every adult, everywhere I went, everybody read it. I had heard the sort of like the basic bare bones of the story of it sure. just by overhearing adults talk about it. Look, and never felt compelled to read it until now. Yeah, I've never been compelled to read it. I wasn't compelled to read it when, when our fans asked us to do it because I am deathly afraid of clowns. And it comes from a childhood trauma, from, which, is, which is so interesting to read this book about these children fighting this killer clown demon, you know? And I, and I posted something on Twitter today. I was like, so have, has anybody else gotten over their fear of clowns from reading it? Oh, no, me either? Cool. Like, great. I, I have not gotten over my fear, though I did watch it chapter one. I watched it, so... You know, the only scene that freaks me out was when all of the actual clown things were in the room. It's like somehow I can deal with Pennywise because I've read The Dark Tower and I know that the clown is just an embodiment of fear. It's not actually a clown. In, in, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? If it's a literal clown, it's more scary. But if it's an embodiment of fear, shape-shifting of a clown, that's... That's okay. Listen, I didn't say that anything that I say on this podcast makes sense. And you asked me if that makes sense. (laughs) Well, you know, listen, I never said it did. I asked if it did. It makes sense for you, dude. Absolutely. Yeah. Clowns terrify me. But I I think, um, yeah, so that's the, that's a little bit of the background. I mean, it's really short. There's not too much. It was really successful. Um, 
I know you had mentioned, didn't you mention something the other day that no one knows what his favorite book or his most popular book is? Yeah, I did a little Googling because I wanted to know where it stood compared to other Stephen King books in terms of popularity, how many copies of it had sold versus other copies. And can we say that it is his most popular work? And what I found and listeners fact check me if you know, because I, yeah, I struggled to get an answer to this. So the basic gist is that Stephen King has not made public how many copies of his books have actually sold. He owns the full rights to them. That's so smart. And it's up to him to to divulge and he hasn't, but based upon what people can gather, what internet Seuss have done, what other entertainment writers and Stephen King bloggers, et cetera, have come up with is that it is one of, if not the most popular, the general theory is it's either it, the stand or Salem's lot. Sure. That those are the three most popular people argue for different reasons why they think one is more popular or has sold more copies than another, you know, and then there's the most sold. And then there's also kind of the most critically acclaimed. Right. And it is definitely one of the most critically acclaimed of his books. Hmm. The critics do tend to really praise this book, even though um, there are some criticisms out there of it from the like literary critics. And, you know, certainly there are things about the book I don't particularly really love. Sure. I don't know if they're going to fit into this podcast. Um, That being stated, it is one of the most culturally profound zeitgeist forming novels of our lifetime. Oh, sure. And I'll tell you one thing, no matter what, because I have my own criticisms about it, but I can't stop reading it. If there has been one consistent thing about King this entire time that we've done this podcast it's that I can't, because I can go back to Song of Susanna. And you remember how, how hype I was about not enjoying that book? But yet I couldn't stop reading it. Because the thing about King is that he's, his stories are so engrossing. They're so interesting. The characters are so gripping. Especially the Losers Club. You know, I've, I have said this in the very beginning. It's not the supernatural stuff and the horror things that he throws in there that he's brilliant at are just the landscape that the, the the things that are really interesting about Stephen King, in my opinion, are the people. And as an actor, that's what I gravitate towards. The people who are driving the story forward. I'm a sucker for a hero story. But the thing about King is that we, don't, we get more anti-hero stories than anything. But I'm also a cynic in certain ways, so this makes sense. I feel like Stephen King and I would be friends. Maybe I just hope, hope that would be true. I think Stephen King would like you. Well, I vote for you and him being buds. Let's make that happen. Internet. Yeah, absolutely. Get on that internet. Why are you slacking off here? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, I tend to uh, agree. I, I think the way that my experience reading this first half of it has been, and I do think it's been unique compared to other Stephen King books I've read. It felt like the words were coming off of the page and they were wrapping themselves around my head, and I was almost being smothered with the words, which was at both uncomfortable and warming all at the same time. Yeah, I would agree. I read this book faster than any of them so far, which is really, like, I would sit down and read 50 or 60 pages at a time. And very quickly. And very quickly. And so I felt like I didn't actually spend a lot of time reading it for as big as it is. I mean, when I looked at it today when we were done, I was like, wow, we are, we're more than halfway through. Absolutely. And it, it's really a unique book. 
there is absolutely nothing. There's nothing like the, the, the first half of this book. I've never read anything like it. It is singularly unique. And I think you hit the nail on the head in that these characters, even the side characters are so deeply fleshed out and feel so alive. Sometimes even more with the side characters. Sometimes you get a chapter or two, you know, with, with, with a random person like Audra at the very end of where we stopped, where it's like you said, jumping off the page, it's gripping. It's like, wait, I didn't expect this person to be a part of this story any more than what they were. If that makes sense. And King does a really great job of taking those secondary, even those really tertiary characters sometimes that just feel like background. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're part of the story. And I do. The one thing that I'll, I'll butt up a little bit of, against you is I do think the magic has a piece to this in this, at least in this first half, because it as the monster is so deeply personal. Oh, sure. It's manifestations, it's glamour charms, if you want to use Dark Tower lingo, are so intimately linked to the fears and the worries and the the anxieties of the person it is terrorizing that it makes the magic intimately linked to the character to me. Sure. And and it I mean it, you know, Pennywise in this case is the embodiment of the the demon that feeds off of fear and anxiety. You know, whereas somebody like the outsider, like we talked about, feeds on sadness, grief. Dandelo in the Dark Tower feeds off of comedy, you know, in comedic situations. So Pennywise, it almost feels like the reason why Pennywise feels the most powerful of those creatures, even though they're of the same species. The reason why Pennywise feels the most gruesome, the most terrifying is because he preys on fear. Your most basic kind of animalistic response. I'm glad you brought that up. So let's, let's talk a little bit about some dark tower tie-ins references. We've picked up in the first half. Sure. And I'll open that up. You already mentioned one. So you mentioned Dandelo, who is this laughter eating monster who cast glamors at the, in book seven of the dark tower, who, when Eddie dies, gives like a prophetic warning against Susanna to, to be wary of Dandelo who has a robot called stuttering bill. Exactly. And that is definitely meant to have, you know, it call outs built into the last book of the dark tower. Absolutely. For sure. Um, what about some things in it that you think have some towerness, have some tower. These can be specific references. These could be general references. These can be like thematic elements. Sure. I have three, the three biggest ones that I can point out, and I guess I'll just mention them and then we can talk about them, are the turtle, Maturin, shows up all over this book. You say Maturin, I say Manturin. That's so funny. Well, we pronounce things so differently. We're going to run with it. We're running with it. Yeah. We're running with Manturin, it. Manturin, Maturin. It's so funny. I don't know what that is. That's our all imaginations filling right. in the blanks. Which is because we're individuals, Derek. <laughs> Not me. Okay, number two, uh, I feel that Derry is located directly on the broken beam of the turtle that is broken in the Dark Tower, the last one that breaks. And I think it happens somewhere around 1920. We can talk about that. And then lastly, the Ka, 
the, the, the mention of Ka or the Katet, which gets broken in the beginning of this book. Okay. So those are all big things. Yes. Those are the things that I've, those are the three big tower connections. Let's tackle them one at a time. So nice. in right at, out of the gate, when Georgie is before Georgie gets killed by it, Bill starting Bill's little brother, he goes into the basement and he kind of gets hypnotized by the turtle wax. Yes. It's one of the first references. Yes. We have seen in, I think in the interludes, if I remember correctly, Mike Hanlon talking about, you know, Bill going on about that turtle. Yep. Which we haven't really fully understand what they mean by that yet in the book, but we get the idea that this turtle is a presence. There's also been moments where the turtle has like reached out uh, psychically to the kids. There are like things that they hear. There are certain lines in the book that happen where, where they hear it mentally and then they, they see a vision of the turtle, but not really sure what it is. Mm-hmm. So the presence of the turtle is looming there. And as we know with the beams in the dark tower, they all have like an animal familiar and they're on the path of the turtle, our content in the dark tower. That's definitely a dark tower reference. Now I would submit, and if I know my tower correctly, this turtle predates the turtle of the dark tower in when Stephen King wrote it does. So this was thought up previous to the, the, the wastelands, correct? So in theory, yes and no, because we don't know if King already had the idea for the turtle, even before the wastelands came out, even though the turtles introduced in the wastelands, I'm sure that he had already had these different animals for these different beams mapped out as the guardians. At least I would I would assume so. And even even if he didn't, once starting mapping them out, it's no surprise he chose the turtle right. for the path of Roland. Right. And remember, I mean, it, it took him four years to write this book, so he's writing other things in between. There has to be some sort of connection that he's pulling from those things and adding it to this book. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's very very cool. So yeah. the turtle is a presence. We don't really know exactly what or how yet. Not at all. But we feel as if there is some sort of a magical force of good that's helping our heroes along the way. Yeah. Because let's face it, I mean, it Pennywise is a very formidable opponent. Oh, absolutely. And you do get the sense. And you know what I like about how we've seen in the first half, how the turtle, this magical help, it's been subtle. Like I can think of when Mike remembers his haunt of the bird and he is trapped in the pipe and he starts thinking and he starts throwing and he feels like a force guiding that threw one a little extra hard, a little more gunslinger true. Yeah. And I got the sense that the turtle was kind of helping his throwing arm there, even though it doesn't say it, but you got the sense that he channeled some sort of good magic there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. So the turtle, your next one was, you think that Derry is on a path of the beam that has broken. Yeah, I... Tell me know, what you mean by that. Well, I thought a lot about what evil means in this book, because we've talked about it before in terms of the tower. And it's clear, you know, of course Pennywise is evil. However, do I think that Pennywise is the most evil thing in the book? No. I think Pennywise is a symptom of Derry. I think that Derry itself, the town, the land in this tiny rural American town 
this idyllic American town with white picket fences and gorgeous landscapes is evil, is literally haunted. And not just by Pennywise, but by the people who have lived there and who have specifically died there. And that comes from the story that the old man tells in the third interlude with Mike, you know, about that shootout that happens. And the fact that there are so many references in Derry of how evil the town itself is. Nothing good ever happens in Derry. Ever. Everything we read in this book is trauma after trauma after trauma. It starts, it starts with, you know, exactly with a group of homophobic people beating up this gay man, throwing him over the bridge, and then, and then Georgie being killed by Pennywise, and then Ben being assaulted by Henry Bowers and the other boys. And then, you know what I mean? There's nothing good, and then they can't figure out how to build a dam the right way. And there's like every step of the way, this Losers Club just can't know... I mean, screw the Losers Club, anybody in Derry, nobody can get it right. And even the best people, the most good-hearted people, Stuttering Bill, Ben Hanscom, you know, these kids who are pure-hearted, Bev, young Beverly, none of them can succeed or excel or move forward if they're in Derry. Nothing can. Nothing grows in Derry, bro. Everything dies. And I think it's because it's on that path of the beam that's broken, which is why when we get to New York later in the Dark Tower, it's catching up. I said to you last night when we were talking about this that I feel like the world has moved on past Derry. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting point. So I want to highlight a few things that I think kind of reinforce this idea that Derry is a forgotten land, Derry has moved on. Dairy is a broken beam. And I really want to highlight a few things and then maybe kind of dig into what that means. Sure. So in the, the first chapter, when Adrian, the homosexual man, gets killed, Don Hoggerty is trying to, or Haggerty, pardon me, is trying to convince the DA to open an investigation into the clown, and the DA squashes it. And he thinks about Adrian's death and the squashing of the clown, that it was Dairy. It was this town who had killed Adrian right from the beginning. One of the very first, uh, you know, chapters, the first chapter. Another thing that I think is interesting is how often you see. I love dairy coming from Pennywise oh, yeah. coming from it. Oh yeah. You know, the first, you know, um, the first balloon that we see, they all say, I love dairy. Now that is also a reference to Adrian's hat. Yep. But at the exact same time, here's someone who genuinely loves this town and gets slaughtered by this town. And also, what, I mean, wouldn't you, if you were Pennywise, love this town? You've gotten away with this forever, as far as we know. And as that chapter concludes, one of the testaments to Derry being bad and being a haven of corruption, uh, Garten and Dubay, they had their sentences pending, spending, suspended pending appeal for the murder of Adrian mm -hmm. and they never go to jail. For That's it. right. They completely right. get away right. with the murder of Adrian, or at least we all know that it's, it's ultimately it that kills him, but it is these two, it is these two men who facilitated this and they 100% get away with it. And it's funny you bring that up because I feel like one of the major themes in the book is 
this idea that in America, in the United States, we idolize this small town America. And the fact that King constantly writes about small towns and their trauma and their problems. And I mean, we live in the fifth biggest city in the United States in Philly. We don't really like, we don't really think about this. You know what I mean? But in this small town, rural America where it feels like, yeah, a kid just can't go out and, you know, put a little paper boat out in the street and run it down without being eaten by a killer clown. You know, so have, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on, on his commentary about small town idyllic America? I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, uh, a few, there are a few things that come up to that. Another thing that I think backs this idea that it's kind of, there's an element of dariness to this evil. When Mike is interviewing Norbert Keene at uh, one of the interludes and he's getting the story of the gang that got gunned down and he's asking how was this story not national news? These were famous Midwestern bank robbers and everyone that was a part of it denies that they were there. And what Mr. Keene says is it's not about just what happens. It's also about where it happens. If it happens in New York or LA, that's a story, son happens in dairy. Yeah. People aren't as keen to go for it and to listen to it. Exactly. And I do think there is an element of Americana and, imper- and, and most importantly, Pax Americana deconstructionist. The idea of American values and American peace being the greatest peace in the world that is being kind of stripped down implicitly in the way we, we meditate on where is this evil coming from? Is it, in, is it imbibed in dairy itself or is it from this malevolent force, this demonic, mm-hmm. magical force of it? And I think it's peppered with ideas that it's really dairy that makes it okay for it to get to, to be able to live there. For example, in, we already talked about this. The DA squashes the clown so he can convict the killers who never get to go to jail anyway. Mm-hmm. That's dairy. That's not it. That's not Pennywise. Right. That's Derry doing that. And, and so because of that, the question is, I think not to get into the headspace of the author, Stephen King's from small towns in Maine. Mm-hmm. He's seen some of the, the backwardsness of it. It comes through in his writing. You know, the character stuttering Bill as he grows old and he becomes a famous writer, he admits that all of his writings are just a connection to Derry. Yeah. It is him going into this childhood. I mean, why not? And extrapolating all of these things out. This is very self-referential. This is King talking about his own writing process and his own childhood. And if we understand Bill as the stand-in for King, which I think is pretty apt, we are seeing a small town that is cruel, that is ignorant, that is prejudiced, that is white, and that it's is very white. And that is ultimately a place that children can go missing every 27 years, 15, 20, 30 at a clip, and everyone just keeps moving on. You know what it reminds me of? Wolves of the Kala. It reminds me of the children being taken, you know, every 20. I mean, it's a different circumstance, but it reminds me of that same mindset of children being taken. It brought me back to, to the Wolves of Kala. But at least in Wolves of the Kala, the Kala are fundamentally good people. 
and they're being oppressed. Yeah, Derry is not. They're, they're, there are not many good people in Derry at all. Yeah, they're the losers club. It, it, the whole, right, the whole town. And, and Mike Hanlon's father. Those are, all, those are all of the good people in Derry. Every other character we meet is somewhere between completely terrible or completely emotionally apathetic and unavailable. Except for Doc Holloway. He shows up in this book. He does. That is he another. He shows up in this book. Yes, the character from The Shining shows yeah. up and is part of the black spot and is a cook there. Another just awesome reference. That was pretty cool. That was very cool. Yeah. I think I stopped when I read that and I texted you and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you see? That? I'm such a sucker for fan service sometimes. You know what I mean? But I, But again, it's the brilliance of King connecting all of these things together, you know, and the reason why we started this podcast to begin with. Absolutely. I totally agree. But to answer long winded, to answer your question, I do think Americans tend to look at their peace and prosperity and just tend to pump their chest and say, look how awesome we are. Well, it's because it's all we've been taught. And well, but what Kevin Stephen King says, look at your lives. Well, yeah, they're not that great. <laughs> There's Pennywise's in the sewers of every small town in America. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I do think there's a, an element of deconstruction, deconstructing the idea of the American peace happening. It happens in Salem's Lot. Oh, it happens. It happens all over his novels, all over. And I think that's a big, important theme for him. I mean, again, I don't want to I don't want to dig into his brain or anything, but just from a reader's perspective, from a fan's perspective, that's at least what it feels like. And I mean, I. I don't know about you, but, you know, having been to some of these small towns in Pennsylvania, you know, there's a lot of mythic lore and a lot of old lore in, in Pennsylvania or a ton of places near where I grew up are supposed to be haunted and filled with things with, with, with images of people like Pennywise and, or demons like Pennywise. And so I could see how this book was popular because I think a lot of people around the country can connect with that type of feeling in the place that they grew up. I mean, there's also this narrative in America of, of leaving where you grow up, you know, leaving and never wanting to come back, which is what the majority of the losers club, except for Mike, 95% of the losers club, except for Mike wanted to do, but then have to come back. Right. Oh yeah. And absolutely. So, because so I'm going to, I'm going to put a pin on that. Because, yeah, absolutely. Because there's another no, thing. Listen, I'm just being consistent by bringing up things we want to talk about, but not until later. Yes. Earlier in the episode. But we definitely <laughs> have to talk about the theme of leaving and coming back because that's a big one. And I have some ideas about how to think about it. But before we do that, you mentioned another thing in dark tower references that I think is worth discussing, which is how this book deals with the concept of content. Yeah. I mean, it's broken from the very beginning. I mean, when, when, when Stan Uris gets that call and unfortunately takes his own life in that bathroom and puts it on the wall, you know, in his own blood from the, you know, the passage that we read in the beginning, I knew right away. I knew when that happened, you know, when they started making the phone calls, I was like, there's gotta be one person. Kotet has to, it, it can't, it can't go this perfectly. They ha they're going to have to struggle, you know, I mean, based on the way the book opens, you know, two different gruesome murders. I, I, I thought to myself, this group is going to have to start out with a struggle. And obviously they do. And I think the broken quartet is interesting. I mean, maybe the reason why they're not completely able to get rid of Pennywise up until this point where we're at 
has to deal with that. That bond is broken. I mean, it was too much for Stan. Yeah, Cotet is one of my favorite concepts of the Dark Tower. I think it's my favorite. The idea of a group of people who can open themselves up to each other, where they can dream together, they can share their fate together, they can share their thoughts together. That the idea of the Cotet, to me, is one of the best things of the Dark Tower. And you absolutely see the Losers Club as a Cotet. Oh, for sure. And you do, I mean, one of the first chapters is a member of that quartet killing themselves. Ugh, it's rough. We don't really know at this point what the Loser Club is goes through fully. In particular, the character Stanley goes through fully to want to take their life. But we do know how powerful it is. And we do know how, um, how terrifying it is to these kids. But we only get to see Stanley as an adult. The question I want to ask you about Stanley is a rather simple one, and I want to get your take on it. Is he a coward? You know, that's a difficult question. My immediate response to your question, which is how we do this podcast, is no. No. I grew up Catholic as a child up until I was about 16. Uh, and when I was 16, I started to see my own contradictions within that setting. And I stepped out of it. And one of the big things in Catholicism is that if you take your own life, if you commit suicide, that it is one of the most selfish acts that a person can commit. And uh, unforgivable sin, completely right? unforgivable sin, whatever the hell that is. And so to me, growing up and knowing and, and, and learning in my adult life, what depression and anxiety is and how crippling it is for some people. Listen, asking for help is not the easiest thing to do. And sometimes it's not even an option. And for somebody like Stanley, I mean, that passage that we read in the beginning, Stanley's wife doesn't find her voice until he's dead. I think that says a lot of things. I think that says a lot of things about their marriage. I think it says a lot of things about Stanley and how as an adult, maybe he just felt so, you know, um, not excellent and not, I don't, I don't know. Righteous, not, not, does that make sense? I mean, not like it does. It does. I, I think if I understand your point, you're saying that to call him a coward is to potentially negatively stigmatize people struggling with mental health, depression, anxiety. Yeah, and, and, and also, I don't know, man, if, if, if I had been through, I mean, we don't know what Stanley's been through yet. And that means to me, we've read some fucked up things in this book so far. Some crazy shit happens in this book. I could tell you if I was one of these kids, I would have already died. I would have already been like, Pennywise, you can just eat me. Just take me, buddy. I'm not, you know what I mean? But at the, uh, I don't know. I don't know what his trauma is. And so the only thing that I know about Stanley thus far in the book is that that trauma was so heavy that nobody could take it from him except for himself. And I got to tell you, it's one of those things in life that I just don't know 
if I, if I can judge as a human. I don't know. It's not my life. And you're, you're right that we're in the middle of the book, and it might be clearer at the end. But I'm going to give you my take on the question. No, please. The midway through. And this, um, it's the opposite that you have. I, I respectfully, I respect so much about where you're coming from. But I, at this point in the story, I don't necessarily agree. Because mm-hmm. whatever trauma Stanley went through, everyone else in the losers went through equal and potentially some of them worse, in particular stuttering Bill who lost his is uh, his brother. Sure. And we don't know the culmination of the story of them and it, but we know it's bad. And when you make an oath and right now, all we know is they made an oath to come back. And when you promise and make an oath and an oath to fight against evil and fear and terror itself, That's not something you walk away from. Even if your own psychological and physical makeup make it very hard for you to confront it, you have to. I think of what the character Beverly had to do to get to Derry. I think of what she had to fight to get to Derry. She literally had to beat up her abusive tyrant of a husband. Absolutely. She had to walk barefoot with bleeding feet to her friend's house and beg for safety and money. But she made it back to Derry and she's there to fight this monster. Stanley, who has one of the best lives post Derry of all of them, takes his life. And I, it, at this point, and I may change my mind at the end of the story at this point, he is a coward. Now, look, everybody has their own opinions, right? I'm not saying mine's better than I w- yours. I wish everybody could see me. I'm like holding my arms up in the air. I'm like clenching my teeth. No, no, no. I, it's not that I don't understand where you're coming from. It's that I feel like I don't have enough information yet to answer that question. That's fair. You know what I mean? And that's, that could be the right answer. And Well, there is no right answer. This is a completely objective. This is you and I reading a book and giving our opinion about it. There's I, nothing here that's right. I think you mean subjective. Subjective. Oh, my God. Objective. You know, listen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for all the laymen out there like Steve. You know, we all thank you for having a Derek in our life. I really do. There was something that you had said earlier, too, that I was like, thank you for explaining that. I was, it was the, the historical context of America. I don't know. It was a three-worded a pox Americana. I know right now that this is all going to get cut. Which no, is, no, dude, we're not cutting into this. So for anyone who it. doesn't know what pox Americana is, I had no idea. It, this is a reference that is often talked about of the post-World War II America. Where, oh, where the 50s it, America? Yes. And yeah. it is a direct paraphrase. Yeah, it is the direct paraphrase to um, what's considered pox Romana which is the period of time when Augustus was the first emperor of Rome, and it means Roman peace. And the idea of Pax Romana is that finally Rome is a great, perfect, and peaceful society. Now, there are two different places in American history that are argued to be, that they argue is so great, it's like the time Augustus ruled Rome, 
and I didn't come up with this. And the, the first one, because you're looking at me like, huh? No, no, no. no, 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 no. So I'm the first is, is post-World War II is sometimes called and the emergence of the baby boomer generation, mm-hmm. the labor movement, mm-hmm. the American middle class is sometimes called Pax Americana. Also, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 80s, early 90s is often sometimes called as the Pax Americana. Which is we're, we're right before in this book. And this book is dealing with kind of both of those times. No, no, no. The reason I was looking at you the way I was looking at you was I was like, oh, thank goodness, everybody. We got an ancient Roman history. It's not piece my of information. I know it's not I'm, my fault. Just, all Western civilization I, comes back to. I'm just <laughs> proud of you for fitting it in there. That's all. <laughs> but if you want to talk about the, the peace and prosperity of America, the term is Pax America. Oh, I believe you. No, in fact, what I, what I really wanted to do was commend you for explaining it the first time because I had no idea. And I was like, Oh, thank goodness. But I know anyway, in, we, in, we in are short, totally, we are totally off. In off, short, yeah. I don't think Stan is a coward just because I don't know yet. I feel bad for him. I mean, I don't know. Like, there's a part of me that feels like, what, what about being the one person in that group that can't hold that oath? You know, I don't know. There's a part of me that sympathizes with that person. I'm not necessarily saying that is a decision that I would make. But in my older age, I, I can, I don't know, I feel a little, I feel a little bad for Stan. I do. I, I feel bad for all of these characters. I oh, truly all traumatized. I, yeah, I truly do. And I think that goes to what I would argue is the main theme of the first half of this book. And I think one of the brilliant aspects of how this book is written and the most unique aspects is its nonlinear storytelling. The fact that it is constantly jumping back and forth between two different times. Fun Dark Tower reference when Ben Hansom is on the plane flying to Derry, he hears bells before we go back into his past. That reminds me of the Dark Tower Todash Chimes. Oh, absolutely. That you hear when you travel into time or space or another dimension. I think there's a couple times actually in in the book where, where you can hear the chimes. Where yeah. The chimes are mentioned. Yeah. And so I think that's an awesome Dark Tower reference. And what I think we are seeing in the fact that the adult story and the kid's story are happening simultaneously, to me, this is creating the feeling that the past and the present are not disconnected. In fact, that they are actually happening at the same time. And because of that, the traumas of the child and the trauma of the adult cannot be separated, which is to your point about Stanley, because he is constantly living in both his past and his present, because he is constantly feeling this, even if he's convinced himself he's not, and he's just a successful Atlanta accountant, once that illusion is shattered, he can no longer cope, and the only, rec- the only choice he sees left is to die rather than to live this past again. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, of all of the kids in the Losers Club, Stan is the one that doubts it the most so far. He's kind of the one person that, that's not really on board. Yeah, I totally get that. I want to highlight, after Stan talks about his experience in the this, in this standpipe and the dead people come after him, and how he doesn't really believe that was real, Uh, So I'm going to read a few. I'm going to paraphrase a little and I'm going to read. He, which is Stan, wanted to tell them that those dead boys who had lurched and shambled their way down the sparrow staircase had that something worse than frightened them. They had offended him. Offended 
Yes, it was the only word he could think of. And if he used it, they would laugh. They liked him. He knew that. And they had accepted him as one of them. But they would still laugh. All the same, there were things that were not supposed to be. They offended any sane person, any sane person's sense of order. They offended the central idea that God had given the earth a final tilt on its axis so that twilight would only last about 12 minutes at the equator and linger for an hour or more up where the Eskimos built their ice cube houses. That he had done that and he had said, in effect, okay, if you can figure out the tilt, you can figure out any damn thing you choose. Because even light has weight, and when the note of a train whistle suddenly drops its Doppler effect, and when an airplane breaks the sound barrier, that bang isn't the applause of the angels or the flatulence of the demons, but only air collapsing back into place. I gave you the tilt, and then I sat back halfway up the auditorium to watch the show. I got nothing else to say except that two and two makes four, the lights in the skies are stars, if there's blood, grown-ups can see it as well as kids and dead boys stay dead. You can live with fear, I think, Stan would have said if he could. Maybe not forever, but for a long, long time. It's a fence you maybe can't live with because it opens up a crack inside your thinking. And if you look down into it, you see there are live things down there. They have little yellow eyes that don't blink. There's a stink down in that dark. And after a while... Maybe you think there's a whole other universe down there, a universe where a square moon rises in the sky and the stars laugh in cold voices and some of the triangles have four sides and some have five and some have five rays to the fifth power of sides. In this universe, there, there might grow roses which sing. Everything leads to everything. He would have told them if he could. Go to your church and listen to your stories about Jesus walking on the water but if I saw a guy doing that, I'd scream and scream and scream because it wouldn't like it wouldn't look like a miracle to me. It would look like an offense. He's a realist. He can't he can't think past realism. That was a long, long quote, but it's I mean, fine. it does highlight your point that maybe he's not a coward. Maybe his worldview doesn't permit this. Right. And hence he has to kill it. I mean. It kind of invalidated my whole point here, but well, I thought also, it was a well, good chapter. It's okay because I said earlier that we haven't found out about Stan's trauma yet because we haven't heard his haunt, and we absolutely have because you just read a whole paragraph about it. <laughs> well, but we don't know the full extent of the haunt that happens to these kids yet. Right, right. They still haven't uh, presumably fought and thought they defeated the monster. We know there's a blood oath. We know they thought it might return, but it might not return. And that if it did, they'd come back. And now they have come back. Well, I think we've talked about Stan a good bit. Yeah. Wasn't our plan to talk about Stan first, but you know what? That's how things happen. That's how it goes. Let's talk a little bit more about our losers club. Yeah, let's do it. There's five other kids. Um, who do you want to start with? Let's start with Mike. Okay. The outsider, as he names himself. Mike, can I say this? Yes. Thus far, Mike's my favorite character. Oh, really? Easily. Interesting. Well, he's a historian. You no, know, and he's the man. I mean, he, he, he is also, what I really enjoy about Mike is that he's the linchpin. Yeah. He brings them all back. And what I, I, I never left. What I also like about Mike is how as a librarian and a historian and how he also uses oral histories to gain the knowledge that he needs about Derry, how he as a character straddles both an academic, but also a like folklore 
and like colloquial style of historical writing. Oh yeah, he's a literal farm boy. And and I like how he straddles these different worlds of folklore and actual history. And I like that we get in his interludes his process where like he started with the books, he started with the newspapers, and then he started talking to people. And that's where he really started to put it together. I love that he's a historian of Derry. The interlude with his father on the deathbed and the telling of the story of the, the black spot was probably the best thing I've ever read. Yeah, it might be the best written thing in this book. I, s- I sat down and read that entire interlude in one run. I couldn't put it down. And I remember when I put it down, I texted you and I'm like, I just read this interlude and I don't know if I've ever read anything better. It was incredibly vivid, incredibly vivid. And the way it ties into the theme of deconstructing Pax Americana, the American piece, as a fundamentally racist thing, the fact that soldiers are being in not too long ago from now are being tormented and tortured simply because of the color of their skin. And the fact that they built something of value that brought joy and they did it because they had no other place to hang out and be. And the fact that it brought joy, not only to Derry, but to other towns, that's the reason that it had to be destroyed because Derry is racist and because it feeds on fear and suffering and death. Absolutely. And I I thought it was amazing. Arguably white fear and white, you know, this, this, uh, this apologetic nature of white people comes from the fear of others who have a different color of skin. And what I loved the most about it was Mike's father's meditations about evil. Because one of the questions is, if you know Derry is this backward, racist, terrible place, why did you stay there? Why did you come back there after your, um, your, this, this amazing pub that you built and jazz club that you built got burned down? And he says something to the effect that, like, you know, not all evil is total evil and not all good is total good. He talks about a sense of moral grayness. He goes back to Derry because that's where he could buy a house. Right. Because there he could have a little bit of peace. He could actually have a farm of his own. And he talks about that. Yeah, there's some real evil here. It's almost as if Mike's father's inner goodness needed to come back to Derry as a like check on the evil that's there. There had to be someone as good as him to have a son like Mike, who would then become the historian to document these like horrid affairs of this monster. And I thought it was so compelling. Yeah, I would agree with that. My favorite character by far thus far. Yes, by far. Well, I mean, he writes history. Of course, he's my favorite character. Let's hit Richie real quick. Richie Tozier. What do you got? Well, Richie annoys me. I mean, come on. Like, He's a lovable kid, but he can't make voices. I was probably Richie when I was a kid. In fact, I was probably the mixture of Richie and Ben. Uh, honestly, if I'm being completely honest. Um, I mean, Richie's fine. You know, I, I, I'm glad he's in the group. I think he's probably one of the most committed to the Losers Club, even though he likes to act like he's a little too cool for school. Um. You know, I, I love that his 
his nature, his eccentric nature, his anxiety comes out in these voices, in this, in this idea of performance, in that he is a natural performer, and that his way of dealing with that anxiety is to perform. And I, I can connect to that as a, as a human. I thought he would be your favorite character. He's not. He has so much Eddie, Eddie he, Dean in he, him. He does, but he's like, you know, the 10, 11-year-old Eddie. And so he mildly annoys me for most of the book. That's fair. Okay. No, my, f- yeah. I don't have that much more to say about Richie yet at this point. I thought yeah. he was, I think he's a really interesting, good character. Um, I like that he's a natural performer. I like that he finds his place in radio and I am interested to see where it goes with him. Yeah. I mean, I think it, to this point, he really is the person that brings a bit of levity to the losers. Was it Richie or Eddie uh, who as a kid said that if big bill asked him to die, he would die for him. I think it was Richie. Yeah. And I really admire that. Oh, like, yeah. If Bill, like, I love that Richie's like, we got to go see this book, Bill. We got to go see if this thing moves. We've got to figure this out. You and I are going to, like, we're going to take a look at this and we are not going to shy away from it as a child. And I love that he pushes Bill to confront his fears. I mean, when push comes to shove, Richie is probably the most dedicated but this is why I'm going to, I'm going to interlude to another kid. This is why I say I'm a mixture of Richie and my favorite character, Ben. Tell me why Ben's your favorite character. Because Ben is the, it was me as a kid, man. Like I was, I was outgoing to the losers. I was outgoing to the, to the anxious kids, the kids who got in trouble all the time. I mean, I came from a, a fucking really easy plutonic, suburban white home. You know what I mean? I was white bread as a kid, but I, but for some reason, the people who were always had a story, always had an issue, had some trauma were attracted to me as a friend. And I don't know what it was. And I have several friends from my childhood that I could bring up. And so Ben, you know, He's, he's the fat kid, man. Like he's the kid that gets picked on. He's the kid that hung out in the library for hours at a time. Like I connect to him. And I think it's interesting that Ben of all of them is the one who like, I need this cocktail and who is immediately like, no, this was the right thing for all of us to do. He is, he is sure of himself in every desperate situation he's put in. Like when he's getting beat up by Henry and the rest of those kids, I mean, he just, something snaps, something clicks, something moves for him. And when push comes to shove, Ben is going to be there. He's going to be there. He's loyal. He's ready to go. Even though he might shit his pants, (laughs) you know, I got to tell you one of the most terrifying chapters in the whole thing was when Ben as an adult walks into the bar and gets a pint glass of tequila yep. and starts swigging tequila and snorting. a uh, I think it was a lemon. Yeah. He starts snorting fresh lemon juice as a chaser for the tequila. And you can see the staff being like, like they could see the fear. They, he was a regular, 
I really enjoyed having him at the bar. He never got too drunk there. Been down that road before. And he is doing this. And the staff is just like, sir, do you, do, do you want another one? Like, are you sure you're okay? We Like, what are you doing? And to see his character as an adult when being called back to Derry abuse his body like yeah. that yeah. is it kind of makes me think of, well, Henry Bauer cut him up as a kid. He overate as a yeah. kid. His mother is traumatizing. His mother just constantly feeds him and feeds him and feeds him because he's growing. It's her manifestation of her anxiety being put into this child. I mean, honestly, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be a single parent, a single mother in 1958. It's got to be tough. It has to be tough. I, I don't think it's easy now, but it's got to be tough then. No, absolutely. It's, it's tough no matter what. And so, you know, Ben... It was hard to read the beginning of chapters of Ben, to be honest with you, for, for me personally. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I connect with Ben a lot. I connect with Ben as an adult of of starting to, like, pull himself together and, and, and finding, you know, the need to change health wise and those types of things. But, yeah, and also Ben, like, he goes after the girl and he's not going to get her, but he wrote her this really sweet poem I'm going to tell you this right now, man. That was me. 100%. 100%. Like, I see what you're saying as knowing me in my 30s about Richie. And that's why I say that Richie and Ben, if, if those two were put together, that would be me for sure. That's fair. I, I thought Ben was a very interesting character. He gets a ton of time, gets a very long chapter. It is Ben who becomes from a plot point the glue that brings the losers together because it is Ben that builds the dam mm -hmm. that brings them all to their safe Haven. And one of the things that this book does such a well does so well for the kids is that the town of Derry is very hostile and threatening. Not only do they have to contend with their literal nightmares being manifested, they have these like this group of bullies led by Henry Bowers who will literally beat them up anywhere they go or possibly kill them. And then there's the barons, this place that is sewer water. However, it's their safe haven. And the idea that you can form your own little safe haven reality. And that fact that they go into this safe haven and where that's where they all meet. And it is where Ben brings them all together with his idea on how to build the bridge and the idea of, I'm sorry, build the dam. The idea that you can build something in dairy, something that's good, that does it what it's supposed to do, that you can be inspired, means that dairy is not as fundamentally broken as we said at the beginning. There is some hope for it here. Yeah. You can do something in dairy that works. It's not all going to end in murder and violence. And I love that Ben represents that. And I love that Ben just knows how to build the bridge sure um, the bridge the dam yeah he just knows how to do it he, he becomes a successful architect and then he goes from that Shocking. from building the dam to building though you know it's interesting as an adult one of his buildings i forget which one they said in i think it's in the uk is contentious mm -hmm. people debate whether it's good or bad 
the idea is that yes, he is successful, but it's not unilaterally yeah, way successful. To pick that up. Okay, all right, I see you, Derek Jones. Yeah, it's an interesting part of his character that it's kind of true for all of them as successes, save Stan. Yeah, right. Right. So Bill is a successful writer, but there's contention. Some people think his books are good or bad. He almost fails like he quits writing college mm-hmm. which i also think is a stephen king way to make his comment about how writing's taught well let's talk about bill let's talk about bill yeah i thought one of the most fun chapters for me as a wannabe storyteller podcaster commenter on media and media analysis was when bill is in college and he goes into his college class and he says why can't a story just be a story yeah Why does it have to be a representation of this and that, which might seem odd coming from someone that has a podcast analyzing storytelling and in particular, Stephen King's storytelling. But at the end of the day, there is a sort of anti-academia, English academic scholarly thing happening there saying like his, his professor, Bill Denborough's stuttering Bill's professor called his story pulp and he went and sold it for money. Yep. And was just like, why not F you? Why not? Pulp can change the world. And you know, Bill is the inherent leader of this group. And that's, that's pretty apparent from even that first chapter with, with Georgie, you know, you see how even when he's sick in bed and can't physically help Georgie, that he leads Georgie. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Bill probably blames himself for Georgie's death. I agree with Pennywise. And that's a lot of trauma to, to grow up with. And the fact that after Georgie dies, that really Bill's parents are no longer existent. So he, he's almost forced into being the leader. And I don't know what that's like personally, but I would imagine that that's a really tough role to be thrust into at such an early age. And then you have a group of five people, one of those whom you love with all your heart in Beverly, who will, who will get to last, which I'm really excited about. But it, it's really interesting that Bill, the, the one who stutters, the one who, who has such trouble communicating, is the leader. And becomes a writer, which and, is right, to say right. a professional communicator, right. which I wanted to ask this of you. And I don't know if I know the answer. Why a stutter of all the things that could be holding Bill back? Why a stutter? I think that's interesting. Well, I think not being able to communicate clearly for somebody that is such an A type person and such a leader is demoralizing. To not be able to speak clearly and to the moments where you get your emotions are so high that you can't get that feeling out. To me, that's demoralizing. At least that's the way that I would feel. And when I read Bill stutter, I'll be completely honest. It's, it's kind of difficult <laughs> after a while. It's like, like I get it. And I think it's there on purpose. I mean, I think we as the reader are supposed to feel Bill's struggle as he tries to fucking speak. And how dare me as the reader think that it's, it's, you know, 
oh God, I have to sit through this kid trying to stutter. Am I any better than anybody in dairy as I read this book? You know what I mean? Steve, you don't have to beat yourself up. I'm not, I'm not though. I think it's an interesting comment on the people around Bill. Yeah. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It is slowing down this natural leader's ability to communicate. It is also a manifestation that of trauma that there is before even Georgie died, there's something wrong in the Denboro house. And part of it is that, yeah, they say the right things, they do the right things, but here is this boy who should be top of his class and everything who stutters, who stutters and stuttering is a real issue. I, a friend in the past, I won't name cause I don't have their permission struggled with a stutter and as this friend grew into a teenager and young adult, just retreated within himself and was so afraid of opening their mouth in public places with people that didn't know, know him because he would sound dumb. Yeah. And this person is not, was not, will never be stupid. Right. But it was just a, ah, man, I can't say hi to friends. I I can't say, I can't meet new people. Yeah. It was that much of a thing because Um, He was so afraid of the stutter making him sound stupid. Meanwhile, you'd hang out with him. We were 19, 20, smoke a few joints. Oh yeah. Play some video games. Be totally fine. Gone. It's funny. You know, I had a, I had a family member of mine, a cousin of mine who who also had a really bad stutter and it, it, it would manifest itself in really anxious situations, you know, which we see with Bill throughout the book. Also, I think Bill's just a great leader. You know, he's a Gryffindor. He's Oh, go ahead. He's not fearless, but he has enough courage in him to move forward. And I think I think there is an inner moral goodness in young Bill as a kid that shines through. What we haven't seen yet is as an adult. It's interesting that in his adult when he comes back, he doesn't get haunted. Everyone else gets haunted but Bill at this point. Bill finds silver. Right. And then Bill goes back to Mike's house and rebuilds and fixes up silver. He finds his silver bullet and everyone else, Pennywise in some form or another comes back to haunt as an adult, but not Bill, which leads me to believe he will take this leadership mantle up in the second half of Probably. the book. I think that's a foreshadow. I don't know. Cause Stephen King has not above fucking with you. Oh, oh right. Well, yeah, like he's not right, above we don't being know like, what's gonna Oh, you think that's foreshadow means that it doesn't. But to me, I get the sense that he is ready to take on the leadership mantle again. And it's no surprise that he comes back to dairy as an adult. And what happens? He starts to stutter again. Before we move on, I just want to say, when I mentioned that Richie reminded me of Eddie, for those of you that might be confused, I meant Eddie from the Dark Tower, not the character Eddie in this book. Yeah, no, I completely forgot about Eddie Kasbrack. I said there were six kids, there are seven. I left one out. You left Eddie out, man. Uh, well, let's talk about Dude, it. dude, I how know. can you leave? All right, so let's talk, let's talk some Eddie. Well, I mean, obviously, he deals with some Munchauer by proxy. Uh, because his mother, Gesundheit. yeah, it's, it's this, it's this medical condition where typically adults, um, they sort of put their 
health issues onto their children or, or they make up health issues and, and filter it through another person. And it's pretty common with adults and their children. And so to me, Eddie's mother who gives him this, you know, (laughs) this inhaler, that's just water vapor, you know, that's total bullshit. He takes all this medication. His mother has completely convinced herself that he has all of these health issues, all of these problems. And really that's his, the way that Eddie's been abused and traumatized is that he feels like, I mean, even in his adult life, he feels like he has to be on all of these medications for all of these problems. And of all of the kids, it would be, you could argue that Eddie is the least brave and the easiest one to prey on. Yeah. I think that's a good argument. I, I think Eddie is an interesting character because of he represents this idea of sickness, of sickness yeah. in incarnate. I think it is um, no surprise that when we get into the mind of the pharmacist, when Eddie's having this paralyzing asthma attack, the pharmacist is just like, yeah, it costs nothing because it's just water vapor. It's bullshit. It's snake oil. You know, and he sells it to his mother. Yeah. Like dairy is evil, bro. Yeah. It's evil. There's nobody good in dairy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's just not. Except for the losers. Except for the losers. There's Everybody no sucks. Everybody does suck. <laughs> and yeah, and I do think Eddie represents the idea of perpetual sickness, but it's not physical at all times. Most of it is the sickness of the mind. The idea that you are so crippled with fear and anxiety. That's been placed on him. That's been placed upon him by other people. And it manifests into his adulthood. And because, because we are both adults and children all at the same time, our past never leaves us. We are living these things simultaneously. We may, we may suppress them. We may repress them. We may pretend like they're not there, but they're there. They're present. We'll never escape it. And what makes so far this a more optimistic tale is that these characters have chosen to dig up these memories and fight them. And yeah, that is great. Absolutely. Um, one more, or do you want anything about Eddie anymore? Uh, just one other thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, before we go to Beverly, that is, I think also as a transition to Beverly, and we'll save her for last. I think she deserves that. Yeah. As a really great character. Um, it's how every character of the Losers Club does come from a broken home of some degree. That's right. Except for Mike and Will Hanlon. And I really think that's an interesting thing. And it is because I would argue it is because Mike has a good relationship with his parents, most specifically his father, Will or William, that he stays in Derry. Mm. And it's because he stays in Derry that the history of it doesn't just disappear again. I would agree with that. Anyway, let's go to Beverly. What do you got? You're just going to throw that out there? Oh, no. Feel free to respond. No, I can't respond to that other than it was brilliant. Oh, come on. Okay, well, now we have to move on to Beverly. Oh, don't sound so upset. Beverly's a great character. I was very, I was super excited till you said that. So you dropped some wisdom about Mike, which I totally agree with. He's my favorite character, you know, so. Beverly is, you know, is by far the person I feel the most for because to me, her trauma is the most dangerous. 
the fact that, okay. well, her father, look, I don't know what it is like to be a young woman or a woman at all, but I could imagine that having a manipulative, mentally and physically abusive father who damn near, you know, rapes this girl is. Can I ask you something? I don't think he does in the book. Well, the movie makes the father really rapey. Yeah, I don't think in the book he's rapey. I think he's much more physically and mentally abusive in but the book. There's this weird moment in the book where Beverly's mother is help- her and Beverly are cleaning. And she goes, he never touched you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like, yeah, whoa. And, and but but again, I it doesn't surprise me because he he's definitely that type of man. There's no question. I mean, Beverly's father is a despicable human being. And her trauma of not even being able to be safe in her own apartment. You know, that scene where the blood just like she can't get the blood up fast enough. I think is the most traumatizing of all of the scenes of the children. Because she doesn't even physically see Pennywise in her haunt. You know, she doesn't need to for it to be that terrifying. And, and arguably it is that moment that the losers really come together when they clean the blood up in, in her bathroom. I mean, arguably that is when the cotet becomes the cotet. And if it weren't for Beverly, if it weren't for her energy and her need to escape that trauma of her father, the losers wouldn't be the same. I think even though she's not the leader, she carries the most power amongst all all of the losers. Yeah. And I would agree. She is like Ben. They're both kind of like the characters that glue the losers together, you know, because of what they go through brings the losers closer together, makes them more part of one. I also can remember being a like late middle school, early high school group of like loser geeky kids that gets that one girl that will hang out with you. Yeah, me too. I and going through that, I also remember how we all had a crush on her because one girl would hang out with us and we were all completely enamored with her. But then I also remember what this book highlights is how many people would victimize or um, choose to ostracize or insult or slut shame the girl yep. for hanging out with a group of boys, which is insane, which is Absolutely crazy because in all of the scenarios, at least for my personal life, just like in the losers club, you know, like the girl was not sleeping with them all. No, you know, in fact, quite the opposite. No. And it's, it, it, it's only this idea, this obsession in America of, of sex that, 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 you know, that boys and girls can't be friends without there being, of course, some sexual activity happening. I mean, I mean, Beverly's father questions it all the time. Oh, you're hanging out with those boys. You aren't, you aren't doing anything. Are you even in the book that gets questioned? Yeah. And the reason I think blood is the thing that taunts and haunts her is definitely a symbol of menstruation. Yeah. It's definitely a symbol of her budding womanhood and the like complexities and fears and anxieties. And as Beverly goes from just a girl to a beautiful, you know, teenage girl, young woman, 
it, it that itself is a form of of terror and that pennywise weaponizes and throws back against her and it's her looking in the mirror in the place where she should be safe and secure and throwing her own bodily fluids back at her mm. throwing the the own drain where everything should be flushed away and saying you can't flush this away yeah oh that's fucked that's really fucked that's fucked but you know at the same time it's funny how in this scenario i feel like beverly is the strongest of the children in the group of losers, but when they become adults, I feel like King doesn't necessarily really know what to do with her, which I think is really interesting. Um, really? So I yeah. thought Beverly's chapter, when she got the call to be both terrible and harrowing, but I also thought one of the most interesting, I think, I think I'm commenting more on when she joins the group of the losers again as, as an adult. Her separate individual chapter is badass. Dude, her going on her walk into Hansel and Gretel thing? Oh, no, it's intense. But I feel like she loses a little bit of humanity in the writing when she's an adult. Really? I just, yeah, I just don't know if King necessarily knows what to do with her or not. I, I mean, I totally respect where you're coming from, but I flat out disagree. Ob- yeah, that's great. <laughs> No, I think that's great. I mean, I, 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 I don't, it's not because I really admire Beverly, you know, and I, I admire a lot of the choices that she makes. And it just feels like when, like when they're out to dinner and there's that whole scene, it just feels like she's not really involved as much as the guys are. Consider this. Everyone in that scene, when they're at the Chinese restaurant is coming clean and being honest and opening up except for Beverly. Yeah. She's lying. Yeah. She's saying that she has a happy marriage. Meanwhile, her her feet are still cut open from the glass she walked on the day before. Touche. Okay. You know, I see what you're saying. And so she still is covering up for this. uh, What's his name? Tom, this monster Tom, who we now know is hunting after her. Yeah. Again, this tertiary character that was like, thank God we're done with Tom. Nope. Apparently we're not. He is on his way to Derry as we speak in this. And so she is still covering up for this character. And then I think of the adult haunts has by far the most psychologically disturbed. I don't want to say scariest because that's really anyone can be scared of whatever. No, I'm with you on this. But disturbed as as she walks into the Hansel and Gretel house and is being fed (laughs) shit in a cup. Yeah, you're not you know, like you're not wrong or like Ben in the library, like that whole scene. I, I agree with you. I'm not saying, ah, ah, I don't know. Now I feel like I disagree with myself and that's fine. <laughs> you know what? That podcasting's a journey, but well, this, oh, uh, especially the wheel of cough. This is the way we do things, folks. All right. So we are really over even our normal long, it's a long podcast. Book. It's a long book. Before I think we should wrap, I want yeah, to give I you the op- opportunity. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I don't. I don't. I'm excited to see what, what the Losers Club does. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what they do. I can't wait to read. Read along with us. We are going to start at uh, part four of Wheel of Ka. I'm sorry, of it for the next Wheel of Ka episode. Also, it's the holiday season. And folks, you know what I think you should do this holiday season? I think you should visit the Midnight Myths store on their website and purchase a mug or maybe a t-shirt or a sweatshirt 
and just sponsor the Midnight Myth or the Wheel of Ka, whichever one you enjoy. But I think there's a special someone in your life that could drink a cup of coffee out of a Midnight Myth coffee cup or a Wheel of Ka coffee cup. What do you think, Derek? Long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights. <laughs>